We're back in the book of Hebrews this morning. I'm excited to resume our study. It's been good to step away for a couple of weeks, but I'm so glad to dive back into this rich book. Hebrews chapter 3, today we'll be in verses 7 to 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there. You know, there are two dangers that we as Christians face when it comes to theology. Some uh, claim to find theological study irrelevant. And instead, they they say they just want to focus on having a personal relationship with God. Others love the mental challenge that comes with deep theological study, and they therefore become voracious readers of the Bible and of other theological books, but they struggle to know how the many things they're learning should apply to their daily lives. Now, the first of those dangers errs because it misses the crucial fact that it is orthodoxy that leads to orthopraxy, or in other terms, it is right theology, a right understanding of Scripture that leads to holy, right living. But the second type of person errs in the fact that he or she is tempted to make theological study and orthodoxy an end in and of itself. And when this happens, a person begins to pacify their conscience by focusing on how much they know or how intensely they study while ignoring the glaring deficiencies in their own character. Hopefully you can see that both of those approaches are absolutely dangerous and flawed. As believers, we are to be both committed to deep theological study of mining out the truths in God's Word, while at the same time being careful to humble ourselves in light of those truths that we might be transformed by them according to the grace and strength of God. When it comes to the book of Hebrews, we have a perfect balance of intense, deep theological study on the one hand, followed by intense warnings to be sure not to neglect the truths that the author is teaching. He does a wonderful wonderful balance, excuse me, of, of, of teaching us truth and then saying, now be careful to live in accordance with that truth. If you've been with us, then you know that most recently we've been studying the fact that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. He is greater than Moses. Now, if you've struggled at times throughout that section of our study to know how to apply that to your daily life, understand that you're in good company. Many people struggle with with these kinds of passages and and wonder if there's any relevance there for them. But the author of Hebrews is going to help us this morning by showing us the application now to all the truths that we've been studying about the fact that Jesus is superior to Moses. It's going to take us several weeks to get through his application because it is a lengthy application that comes in the form of a warning. But before we get to his application, let me just remind you of a few important details about the context. The overarching theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. We've looked at that time and time again. The author marches through this book holding up every other thing that we might hold as superior or valuable and showing how Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. The previous argument that we've been looking at in the previous section was this. Therefore, consider Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, in verses 7 to chapter 4, verse 13, the author enters into a new section of application a new section of warning to call us to be sure 
that we don't miss the relevance of the things that he's just taught. With that introduction, let's read our text today. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, down through 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What we're going to find in this entire section, starting today and for the next several weeks, is there is one unifying theme, and it is this. Be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. Be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. You may recall that there are several warning passages in Hebrews. We've already studied one of these warning passages back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, the author said this, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. There, in that context, if you'll remember, he was arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. And what he's saying here in in chapter 2, verse 1, is that if the revelation that came from God to Moses through the agency of angels was binding, authoritative revelation... How much more binding and authoritative is this revelation that has come in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ? In a similar way, the author now is going to apply this truth about Jesus who is greater than Moses. And his argument is built on the foundation of the fact that Moses was the premier prophet of the Old Testament. The people of his generation did not respond in faith and obedience to Moses, even though they all would testify to the fact that he was God's chosen messenger. In fact, there's not a single Jewish person who is at all serious about their faith who would not testify, even today, about the fact that Moses is the premier prophet of the Old Testament. And yet, the contemporary generation, the wilderness generation, that heard and saw the ministry of Moses, by and large, rejected him and found themselves rejected by God. The warning that we're going to be looking at is this illustration of how the people in the wilderness responded to Moses and then looking at our own lives and how we respond to Christ. And what the author is saying is don't be like them. Do not fall into the deadly error of hardening your heart in unbelief towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we'll be looking at now, this morning and in the weeks to come. This is warning number two in the book of Hebrews. Beware of hard-hearted unbelief. Now, to look at this, over the course of this entire section, we're going to look at four different parts of his argument. We're going to call them four tactics. Four tactics for guarding ourselves against a hard heart. You want to know how to resist a hard heart? The author tells us that here through this warning. Tactic number one will be our text this morning. Remember the past. Remember the past, verses 7 through 11. 
In our text here in verse 7, he begins with the word therefore, which immediately indicates that he's not left his flow of thought, but all of this is coming right out of what we studied last time. Remember that what he argued there is that Moses and Jesus were both faithful over God's house uh, in their ministry. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. And then he finished that text where we finished off last time with these words. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 for context. Chapter 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now that last verse, verse 6, where he explains how we can know if we are part of God's house is going to be the, the foundation, the bedrock for this application. How can you have confidence that you are one who is part of the household of Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we're going to look at now together. Understand that if you're to be a member of the household of God over which Jesus Christ presides as head, then you must be on guard against a hard heart of unbelief. In fact, nothing is more dangerous to your spiritual life than a hardened heart. And you have to understand that when God evaluates a person's response to Christ, he begins not with their, their outward actions, but with their heart. He's always concerned with the heart of his people. You remember the famous Old Testament text, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God always looks at the heart. And so if God's evaluation of us begins with the heart, what does that say about where our own evaluation of our lives ought to begin? Looking inward at our heart. What is the condition of your heart? Is it soft in faith towards God? Or is it hardened in unbelief? Now, in, in, in order to help us see just how important it is to examine our hearts in this way, the author begins by setting up his argument with a text. What he's going to do is, is read a text for us, quote a text for us from Psalm 95, and then he's going to exposit that text over the next several weeks. He's going to apply that text to us. The author of Hebrews is an expositional preacher, we find out. He's going to quote for us from Psalm 95, which is the psalm we began the service with on purpose in order to prepare our minds for what we would study this morning. But before we look at the quote itself, notice how he introduces this text in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, just as the Holy Spirit says. Now, we don't have time this morning that I wish we had to run down the rabbit trail that I would like to run down based on this phrase. But I do have to point out that it's obvious here that the author of Hebrews believes in the doctrine of inspiration. He's just declared the inspiration of Scripture. He attributes the words of Psalm 95 not to the human author. In fact, he doesn't even mention the human author. In fact, he attributes them to their divine authorship, the Holy Spirit. This is what we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Yes, the Bible was physically written by men, but these were men who spoke by 
the movement of the Holy Spirit within them. Therefore, the, the 66 books of Scripture are the living Word of God. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The author of Hebrews obviously believes this, and so he introduces this Old Testament text with these crucial words. And what he's going to quote for us here is actually just a portion of Psalm 95. The last section, the very end, Psalm 95, in here in our, in our verses, verses uh, 7b through 11. Let me just give you a general context of this psalm because it's going to help us understand how the author is using it here. Psalm 95, as I said earlier, is a call to worship. It was likely written during the time period of David. It begins with a positive call to worship, how we should respond to God. And then it ends with a sober warning of how we should reject, what we should not do in our response to God. So there are really two sections in Psalm 95. Verses 1 to 7 is a call to worship. And verses 7 to 11, the second half of verse 7 to 11, a warning against hard-heartedness. With that in mind, I want to read Psalm 95 in its entirety one more time in order to set the context. Notice the contrast. The first half of the psalm is positive. The second half of the psalm is a warning. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also His. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Now right here is the turning point. And right here is where the author begins to quote in our passage in Hebrews. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, what we see in our text in Hebrews is the, the wording is slightly different in his quotation because, as always, he's quoting from the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So there's going to be some slight variation, but it's the same text with the same meaning. And what we have here are three different segments. This section of text breaks down into three segments for our study this morning. The first is an urgent admonition. An urgent admonition. Look back at Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. Notice the emphasis on the word today. That word today is going to come back over and over again in this application section. The author wants us to feel the urgency of this word. Both the, the psalmist in Psalm 95 
and now hundreds of years later, the author of Hebrews both emphasize this word today. That means the word today still applies to us today. And it means today. The point is that you and I cannot afford to wait and decide to follow Jesus Christ in faith and obedience at some point later in the future. That's a temptation that a lot of people fall into. I'll think about spiritual things later. I'm going to live my life for a while, and then I'll get serious about the things of God. What the author is saying here is don't be so foolish as to make that mistake. Instead, today, if you hear his voice, you're not promised another day is what he's insinuating. You're not promised, in fact, to make it through this message alive. You're not promised to make it home for lunch alive. You're not promised to make it to the fall season. You're not promised to usher in a new year. And so heed the words of the author today. Feel the weight of this word today if you hear his voice. It's time to to stop playing games when it comes to your response to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a game, if you will, of which the stakes are far higher than you could ever imagine. It is God who graciously gives you life in this moment today. It is God sustaining your heart as I speak. It is God filling your breath with lungs, and he has not promised to do that tomorrow, today. If you hear his voice, respond. You have today. Don't waste it, is what the author is saying. Specifically, today, if you hear his voice. Now, the author's not insinuating that we should all sit around today waiting for this audible voice of God to speak to us. Both here in Hebrews and in Psalm 95, the emphasis is the fact that God has already spoken. The Word of God is here. God has spoken in His Word. He's calling to us through the Word. In fact, the the author of Hebrews in this context is calling us to listen to the truths that we just studied. Today, if you hear the voice of God in the truth, the inspired truth by the Holy Spirit, respond. If you hear His voice, notice how He calls for us to respond. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. In quoting this passage as the introduction to his application of Christ's superiority over Moses, the author is calling us to consider where our response to Christ begins. And it begins in the heart. The heart here is a way of referring to the the inner part of us that includes our mind, our will, and our affections. And so he's calling us to be on guard against intentionally hardening our mind, our will, and our affections in response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so immediately when you hear this warning, hopefully you're flooded with thoughts such as this. What does that mean? 
What does that look like to harden your heart? Because I want to make sure that I'm not hardening my heart towards the Lord. Well, stay with me, because remember right now that the author is essentially standing and reading the text. We're going we're gonna to get into what that means as we begin to apply this in the weeks to come. Right now, he's just, he's just reading the text to us. Do not harden your hearts. If you hear the voice of God in the truth that he's just proclaimed, do not harden your hearts. Brings us to the second segment of this text. A historical illustration. A historical illustration. Verse 8 again. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Specifically, he's giving us an illustration. He's saying, not only am I telling you, do not harden your hearts. I'm telling you to look back at a time in history when a whole group of people hardened their hearts towards me and to learn from their example. Don't harden their hearts like they did, is what he's saying. And this fits so perfectly with this this interaction between Jesus and Moses, this setting up of Jesus over Moses. Because when he says, "As, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me, he's obviously pointing back to the time of Moses. He's pointing back to the response of the people of Moses or the people in the wilderness to Moses. Now, if you've ever read Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then you know that the wilderness generation um, responded to Moses with a hard heart. They rebelled constantly against God's revelation through Moses. At almost every turn, they're turning their backs, they're hardening their hearts, they're complaining. The rebellion of the wilderness generation typically revolved around discontentment over their circumstances. It it was like clockwork. As long as their circumstances were going well, they went along with what Moses was saying and what God was saying. As soon as their circumstances got hard, they turned their back. They hardened their hearts and revealed the true nature of their lack of faith. Believe it or not, most often their rebellion revolved around food and water. Food and water. And while it was true that the wilderness generation rebelled over and over again, there there are two primary instances in which their rebellion really reaches a peak. And, And I believe it's those two instances that the author of Hebrews has in mind as he quotes this text. Because specifically he says, where your fathers tried me by testing me. They tested me in the wilderness. There are a couple of instances in particular, in which the people of Israel in the wilderness tested God. But what does it mean when it says here that they tested God? Essentially, when the people in the wilderness tested God, they called on God to prove himself in two ways. They called on God to prove his ability and his character. His ability and his character. Every time, when, 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 when God's provision was a little bit slower than they preferred, they would question whether he was able to provide, and they were questioned whether he was good enough to desire to provide. They questioned his ability, 
and they questioned his character. I want us to go back and look at these two Old Testament examples because they're going to be the illustration that we have to bear in mind as we move forward in applying this text to our own lives. The first example is a demand for water from Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. I'll put the, the words on the screen. Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There's our phrase. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt, listen to this, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff with which you struck uh, the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Notice, they test the Lord in both ways. They cry, give us water to drink. And when the water doesn't come as quickly as they want, they say, why did you bring us out here to kill us? They question the good intentions of the character of God. These two sinful responses are examples of the inevitable fruit of a heart that's hardened by unbelief. Soft hearts, soft hearts that are filled with faith, evidence themselves in times of difficulty by exhibiting trust in both God's ability and character. Hardened hearts evidence themselves by responding in times of difficulty with doubt in regard to God's ability and character. The scriptures affirm this for us over and over again when you start to look for it, both with negative examples like the one we just read and positive examples on the other hand. Let me illustrate this with a positive example since these are, are we, negative examples that we just discussed. You remember three important men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were men that were taken captive by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar sets up this idolatrous image and calls for all the people to bow down and worship. When the music plays, the people are to bow down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were godly Jewish men, and they could not commit this terrible sin of idolatry, so they refused. You remember what happens. When they refuse, it's obviously clear they're not bowing down when everyone else is. They're brought before the king. He's furious, furious and threatens to throw them into the fiery furnace as a consequence for their rebellion. Listen to their response. And notice how it's exactly opposite to the response of the wilderness generation. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, do you notice they affirm their faith in his ability? Our God is able to deliver us. But in verse 18, they affirm their belief in his character because they say, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to do what you want because we trust that even if the outcome is not the one that we think will happen, that God's plans are better than ours and his character is never tarnished. And so we will not bow. You see, a soft heart and a hard heart respond exactly opposite when it comes to faith in God's ability and his character. Sadly, though, the God proved himself over and over again to the wilderness generation. He proved it there in Exodus 17 by bringing water out of a rock, and yet they didn't learn the lesson. That brings us to a second example of their failure that I believe the author has in mind here behind our text that he quotes in Hebrews chapter 3. Example number two is a failure to enter the promised land. A failure to enter the promised land. This is from Numbers 13 and 14. Remember that from the very beginning, from the very first conversation that God has with Moses at the burning bush when he calls him into ministry, he tells Moses that the point of all of this is to bring the people out of Israel or out of Egypt across the wilderness and into the promised land. That's what he said I'm going to do from the very beginning. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. This is right at the beginning, the very call of Moses. So you remember, Moses goes immediately to the people. He, he tells the people that God has sent him. Then God miraculously, through the plagues, brings the people out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He provides for them in the wilderness, and he brings them to, to the very entrance, the border of the promised land. And that is what happens here in Numbers 13. You remember in Numbers 13, God tells them to choose 12 men to enter into the promised land as spies. They go through the land, they look at the land, they come back, and they admit that the land is what God said. It flows with milk and honey. But you remember that 10 of the 12 recommend that the people not enter the promised land because they fear the people that live there. Those people are big, they say. They look like the, the, the giants, the, the Nephilim. We can't defeat these people. They'll crush us. And they turn the people's hearts against God. Numbers 13, 31, but the men who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying, the land through which we've gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So in response to this bad report, the people reject Moses, ultimately rejecting God, and they reject the two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, even to the point, get this, their hardness of heart was so blatant 
they actually recommend removing Moses and choosing a new leader to take them back to Egypt. Numbers 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now this is wholesale, open, unashamed, hard-hearted rebellion against God. They refuse to trust God's power. They refuse to trust God's character. And what makes this even more despicable is what the author says next here in our text in Hebrews. Verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. They saw my works for forty years. Just think for a moment about all the things that the wilderness generation saw that any other person would love to see. Just think, here's a short list that I just compiled very quickly. God miraculously testified to Moses as his servant. Remember, he gave Moses miracles with his staff, things like that that he could do to prove who he was. He miraculously testified through the the ten plagues in Egypt. He single-handedly overthrew the army of Egypt, one of the most powerful armies of the day. He parted the Red Sea. He led the people daily daily by a visible cloud during the day and a visible flame by night every day. He's provided food for the people through miraculous uh, creation of manna that appears on the ground every single morning. Every morning when they wake up, there's a miraculous type of food on the ground. He's miraculously provided water on numerous occasions, one we just read of in, in chapter 17 of Exodus. And he's miraculously caused even their clothing and footwear not to wear out for the entirety of the wilderness uh, wanderings. Deuteronomy 29.5, I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. Think about this. On this very day, on the very day that the people reject God and refuse to enter into the promised land, They woke up that morning and literally ate manna from heaven that God provided. And literally, as they're discussing these things, the visible presence of God is in the camp in the form of a cloud. And yet they say, "Mm, God can't do it. We're not going in. Let's go back to Egypt. What do we take from that? Well, this is a sobering reminder for you and me this morning that what's required for us to have a right response to Jesus Christ is not more evidence. It's humble faith. Humble faith. God had testified to the Israelites in ways that were truly unimaginable, and yet they stood there in hard-hearted disbelief. And understand, friends, God has testified to himself to you through creation, through your conscience, through his word, and through his son in ways that cannot be denied or explained away. 
And so if you're here this morning and, and you're hardening your heart in unbelief towards the Lord Jesus Christ, don't pacify your conscience by claiming that your unbelief is warranted because God must first prove His power and character to you. God's given you every testimony that you could ever need. You even have the same testimony given to the wilderness generation contained here for you in the inspired Word of God. In addition to that, He's added for us His own perfect Son. We live on this side of the cross. We know of the perfect life of Christ, of the the sacrificial death of Christ, of the miraculous resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, that even as the author of Hebrews has said, He sits even now at the right hand of God. Understand, you have all the evidence you need. What is needed now is to recognize your own sin. Admit who you truly are before God. Come in humble repentance and faith, recognizing that your only hope of salvation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that you cannot save yourself. Humble yourself before God, declaring Jesus is Lord. And the Bible says you will be saved. Humble faith and repentance is what is required. But the text is not finished yet. Because in this text, we have not only an example of hard, a hard-hearted response towards God, but we have an example of God's response to a hardened heart. This is segment number three, a divine judgment. A divine judgment. He says in verse 10, Therefore, I was angry with this generation. I was angry. That's a profound statement speaking of God. The persistent, hard-hearted faithlessness of the wilderness generation was finally met with the righteous anger of God. The Bible reveals that God is incredibly merciful, full of love and grace towards sinner, patient. His mercy and His grace cause Him to be unimaginably slow to anger. His fuse is incredibly long. It takes God a very long time to boil up to righteous anger. But in this instance, God's righteousness, His holiness are on display. The hard-hearted rebellion of these people has reached its full maximum capacity. And so it is, God says, I was angry with this generation. And in his anger, he says three things here. I was angry and said, the first statement that he says, they always go astray in their heart. They always go astray in their heart. Again, God reveals the condition of the heart. God evaluates at the heart level. And understand, look at the word always. If you've, read, if you've read the Pentateuch, you understand that God was incredibly patient with these people. God didn't strike them down or bar them from entry into the promised land at the first sin. They sinned again and again and again to the point that God is right when He says they always go astray in their heart. The word always indicates that it took God a long time to come to this place. He's even shown them grace and mercy in waiting this long to declare His anger against them. But this leads to a second statement, a tragic statement. 
not only do they always go astray in their heart, he says, and they did not know my ways. I did not know my ways. We could preach a whole sermon on this one line. In referring to God's ways here, he's actually discussing God's character. Think of it this way. To know God's ways is to know the character of God and therefore have an accurate understanding of how God operates in the world based on his character. A person who understands the ways of God enters into a trial in their life and refuses to blame God of wrongdoing because they know his ways. I say, God is good, God is kind, and he loves me, and therefore this is for my spiritual good. As hard as it is, God has not off his throne, and his character is unchanged. Why does the believer say that? Because they know his ways. But here's what's so tragic about this statement. The people in the wilderness were not ignorant of God's ways. When he says they did not know my ways, he's not saying that literally they didn't know in the sense that of ignorance. No, no, no. The people in the wilderness, as we just saw, have seen God's ways through miraculous displays that you and I have never seen with our own physical eyes. So the reason that they did not know the ways of God was not due to ignorance, but to hardness of heart. The people saw God's works but they refused to take to heart the meaning of those works. They would not give God the glory he deserved. The works of God were to testify to the nature and character of God. The people saw the works. They refused to worship God according to the character he had revealed. And so it is such a tragic statement. They did not know my ways. That leads to the third climactic statement. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. In his anger, God made a declaration. In fact, he took an oath. He, takes, he says, I swore in my wrath that the wilderness generation would suffer the consequences of their actions by never entering into the rest of God. That was their punishment. Now, the word rest here in this passage is going to be used in a couple of different ways. The author will apply it to us later. But here in context, when it says that God swore they wouldn't enter his rest, it means literally they were barred from entry into the promised land. God says, all of you, except for the two faithful spies, will die in the wilderness. And your children will enter into the promised land, but you will not see it. Numbers 14, 20 to 23, so the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your word, speaking to Moses, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Do you know, even in this, there is God's grace because God threatened to wipe them out completely. Moses intercedes for the people. That's why it opens with him saying, I've pardoned them according to your word. God could have wiped them out. He would have been just to wipe them out. He could wipe us out. 
it would be just to do so. He says, no, I'll stay my hand. But hear me this. I will be glorified in the earth. And therefore, these who have dishonored me and tested me these ten times, they will not enter my promised land. And starting next week, the author is going to turn his spotlight from this Old Testament group of people directly to us. And we're going to take lots of time to apply this directly to ourselves. He's going to begin self-examination, but in a real way, of course, the examination has already begun, hasn't it? And if you're here this morning, and, and as you examine your heart against this text, if you find that you have a hardened heart, don't wait to next week for more application. Listen to the text today. Soften your heart in humble repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find Him eager and gracious to save. But as we think of how to apply this text specifically this morning, I want, I want to turn our attention to two words of application briefly. Number one, I would encourage us to meditate on the wilderness generation. This week, I want you to spend some time meditating on the wilderness generation. Let me remind you of the two texts that we read primarily, Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 13 and 14. I'd like you to write those down this week, read through those texts again, and I want you to meditate on that generation. In what ways did they fail to believe in God's power and in His character? And how did that failure on their part manifest itself? What did they say? What did they do? Think on those truths and take them to heart. Learn from them. As believers, we're called to be humble and we're called to be wise. As a Christian, it's not a virtue to have to learn things the hard way. You know, some people take that like a badge of honor. I, I, I always have to learn things the hard way myself. Well, stop that, right? The Proverbs tell us to be wise, to look at the examples of others. And what the author here is saying is, look at them. Look at their hardness of heart and do not harden your heart in the same way. And so I want you to take some time, look at them. Look at how they hardened their hearts. Look at how that manifested itself. But I don't want you to stop there. Secondly, I want you to meditate on God's ways. Meditate on God's ways. Because in every single instance, we see these people hardening their hearts, but we see the goodness, the graciousness, the kindness of God on display right along with it. May we not be guilty as believers of the statement, they do not know my ways. Learn from the wilderness generation and be an expert in studying the ways of God. And come back next week and we'll take those two and we'll put the spotlight on our own lives and apply it to ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this text. We're thankful for the fact that you allow us to learn from the wilderness generation. And we pray that we would heed the lesson. God, help us not to make the mistake of hardening our hearts by not taking seriously the things that we've studied today, but help us to have soft, moldable hearts of, of faith, that good soil that bear much fruit because of the truth. May you, by your Spirit, help us to apply the truth to our own lives that we would walk in it. God, help us not to make the dreadful mistake 
of the wilderness generation of seeing your ways on display and yet hardening our hearts against you. But may we be a people who trust you, who understand that you are sovereign, you are powerful, your plans will come to pass exactly as you said they would. And you're also good, you're also gracious, merciful, and kind. Help us never to question your power or your character, but to trust in you with soft hearts of faith. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.